Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Tides of History ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Hi, everybody from Wondery. Welcome to another episode of Tides of History. I'm Patrick Wyman. Thanks for joining me. So several times over the course of this season on prehistory and the deep past of humanity, I've repeated variations on this theme. Our understanding of this past is changing so fast thanks to new archaeological discoveries, the development of new scientific tools, and new ways of analyzing the evidence that anything I write can and will be superseded within a few years at the very most. Nowhere is this clearer than with regard to the earliest inhabitants of the Americas. The archaeological evidence is bewildering, it's much fought over, and it's difficult to interpret. The genetic evidence is more promising, but it is still exceptionally hard to understand, much less to correlate with the archaeology. Luckily, we have a fantastic guest with us here today to help us make sense of that genetic evidence and the story it tells. Professor Jennifer Raff is returning to Tides for her third visit. She's one of our very few three-time visitors, and she'll be discussing her brand new book, Origin, A Genetic History of the Americas, which is available this week and which I highly recommend to you. Professor Raff is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Kansas. She has written widely on science for publications like the Huffington Post, Forbes, and The Guardian. Her academic work focuses on the genetic history of the indigenous peoples of the Americas, precisely the topic covered by her new book, Origin, which again is really good and you should read it. Professor Raff, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Patrick. I can't believe this is my third appearance on your show. This is really exciting. Thank you. You were one of our very first guests all the way back in like 2017. And it feels really good like to have seen this project come full circle and now reach completion to the point where it's actually out in the world. That's awesome. Oh, thank you. It's a good feeling for me, too. I'm so happy to finally have this done. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's been a long road. So let's start with the why. Why did you feel like this was the right time to write a comprehensive genetic history of the Americas? What's been changing in this field and what's settled down after the past couple of decades? Yeah, that's a great question. I've been asking myself the same thing. You know, I don't know that there is any good time to write this. We're kind of at a here when it comes to how we do this work and the ways in which we do paleogenomics with uh, indigenous peoples of the Americas, our field is having serious conversations about what the ethics of doing that work should be. And I wanted to kind of provide a, what I hope is going to be a useful summary of perspectives there, the genetics and the archaeology, which as you say, imply earlier, it's going to be all out of date, like is probably is now actually come to think of it. But, you know, you've got to start somewhere and it gives a framework for people who are interested in the subject to start and to use to view future uh, discoveries and understand them. So I just kind of plunged right in and see what I could do with it. Okay. Well, that's a really good answer to that question. You should never turn down an opportunity to, to write a book when you're given a chance, especially when it's on something that you obviously care about quite a bit as you do about this topic. I mean, so you, really your focus is on the genetics. I've worked with this material myself. I know how confusing it can be to try to tell a story with genetic evidence, but you have succeeded in telling a coherent story out of this. So how do you do it? How do you turn three complex genetic evidence into some sort of story about the earliest inhabitants of the Americas? Uh, Well, it took me like four years almost (laughs) to figure that out. (laughs) But finding the structure for this book was really, really challenging because 
it was important to me to present not just the genetics in a coherent way, but also the archaeology. And when I did this, I thought of the genetics results as kind of in two ways. So there's the history, the older genetics, the sort of classical genetic studies that provides sort of a framework for me to think about the new whole genome, genomic studies. And it really kind of falls out into a structure where I, I view this as kind of the peopling of the Americas as sort of a, a three-phase process. And of course, that's me imposing my own artificial typing onto this. But it helped me think about the formation of these different populations and their movements and um, kind of what was going on in three separate phases. And then to that structure, I added sort of the individual stories that genomes tell. So we know about this history from very few genomes, actually, very few ancient genomes. And I wanted to kind of give readers an idea of who, as much as we could, who the people from whom these genomes come were and what were they like and what were their lives like. Uh, a lot of it is actually speculation on my part, but I hope it's a little bit, it's informed speculation. And so I, I did my best to kind of have these little genomic stories, these little stories of these individuals overlaid upon this broader context. I hope it makes sense to people. It's hard for me to tell from my from my vantage point. No, it de- it definitely does make sense. It's something I, I mean, I'll, I'll say you're you're speaking to a, a person who's probably fairly uh, inclined to uh, like that approach. I think that it has a lot to recommend it because one of the things I, it strikes me as really interesting about genomics, especially when you're working with ancient DNA, is like this is literally a person. You you are literally working with a person's uh, with a person's genes. This is a person who really existed at some distinct point in time, and even more than that, especially in the case of uh, the indigenous peoples of the Americas, it's generally a person with whom living people today feel some sort of kinship and feel some sort of relationship. That's something I thought was really interesting about your book. You spend a lot of time thinking about, as you mentioned, the ethical implications of this work, because there are real living people today who are affected by it. Absolutely. And I am also very, very much aware of my, um, we call this positionality in anthropology, but my, my identity as a white settler scientists, as we would say, right? I'm an outsider. I'm not native. And so how can I write about these stories in a way that is sensitive, not harmful to this connection that uh, present day peoples feel with their ancestors? And that was a lot of work. And that was something that I really struggled with and tried to do very intentionally with. And I was really lucky to have a great deal of help with that from sensitivity editors who were indigenous uh, scientists from various walks of life. And they were incredibly generous in helping me with their expertise. But it was, it was a lot of work. And another reason why writing this book was such a long process for me. So something that you talk about a, a great deal in the book is the kind of wariness that indigenous peoples um, often have of archaeologists and geneticists. Why is that the case? What's the history of that relationship? Yeah, the history is complex. It's intertwined with settler colonialism, right? So the entire story of the Americas and, and, and especially of the United States, which is I'm kind of, my book is kind of United States centric because that's where I'm from, unfortunately. I can't, can't do the entire continents, right? Both continents. Um, but part of the justification for taking land away from 
native peoples was this argument that they were not entitled to it, that it wasn't theirs, that there was somebody else here first, or that they didn't use the land correctly, or, you know, there's many, many arguments, but one of them was steeped in history. And this thread has run throughout the history of studying native peoples and generally by outsiders, right? So Europeans, the very first European settlers were really confused about who Native Americans were and because they weren't mentioned in the Bible uh, and they of course had a biblical worldview. And so trying to figure out who they were was sort of, sort of launched this whole effort that resulted in archaeology and, and uh, you know, now genetics and the study of Native Americans. And I, I want to be careful in what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that archaeology and paleogenomics and anthropology in general are bad disciplines <laughs> or anything like that. I mean, in some ways, my book is a love letter to my fields. I absolutely love what I do and I love what my the work my colleagues do. But it is important for us to understand the, the sort of colonial origins of our disciplines so that we can avoid some of the harms that have been perpetuated on um, Native peoples because of, of what we have done or what our forebears have done. Um, and so there is a there's definitely a, a narrative in my book kind of going through what some of these harms have been. And I would even argue you can go back to um, the founding of archaeology. Thomas Jefferson, who is widely considered to be the father of American archaeology, conducted the very first scientific uh, excavation on his property and uh, in which he dug a burial mound, or rather, I would say probably his enslaved workers did that, not Jefferson himself, I'm guessing. And he did it very systematically and very scientifically. And uh, it's a really um, fascinating description in his book, Notes on the Study of Virginia. But he kind of set the stage for scientific archaeology. But at the same time as he was doing this and bringing this empirical methodology to the study of the past in the Americas, he was also disturbing the remains of Native ancestors and treating them like specimens, like uh, artifacts in a natural history collection. And so these two uh, approaches, this empiricism, but also this sort of detached stu scientific study, which was not um, sensitive to the perspectives of present day peoples, those things infuse the, our disciplines and the histories of our disciplines. And so they're things we need to be aware of if we want to continue to do this work and to do it in a good way. It's something I thought was really interesting. Something I thought you did really well was that kind of sensitivity to an alternative way of understanding what is very easy to view as sets of human remains, right? It, to see them, as you said, as, as specimens, but like it's also possible to have other points of view and other perspectives on those remains. And like, it's easy to forget that the idea of looking at human bones as, as kind of a value neutral specimen is itself a product of a very particular worldview, a very particular way of understanding um, the world and what human remains are and that not everybody shares that. And that, that like, you can't just assume that your perspective on that, that because you view them as, as specimens and that they're suitable to be the subjects of scientific study, that that somehow overrides the relationship that other people might feel with those remains. Yeah, exactly. And this is something that I have evolved my own thinking on quite a bit. Um, I have really gone from a position where when I was a lot younger, I did view these as, you know, I was just very clinical about human remains. It was not um, even in my thought process about, okay, I mean, I would, I intellectually understood, okay, yeah, these are somebody's ancestors, but it, you know, it wasn't until much later during my postdocs and working with 
mentors who um, were really, really connected with communities. And I began to really understand this point. And I think that it's really crucial for all researchers in this field to do um, and to, to, to remember that these were living people. And in many cases, I got to say, like a lot of the genomes that I'm, I talk about in the book are from children. They're from like little, little toddlers and babies. I mean, I make a point of it in the book, but I was writing this while my own son was growing from a baby to into, he's now a preschooler, uh, which gives you a sense of the scope of how long it took me to write this. And <laughs> I, it was really hard to write those about those children. I, I got to say, I mean, really hard. So it's something that one should take a moment and think about if you're non-native, you really need to think about this and understand that we are trained in a particular way. Maybe we don't even realize it, a, a particular empirical approach. And it is not necessarily the only one and it's not necessarily the most appropriate way to view the remains that we work with. Um, so yeah. it's it's something I've thought about a lot as I've been doing this work on prehistory is just varying societies' approaches to death and the dead. Like we have this this way of locking the dead away in cemeteries or cremating them, and you, you know you're left with a tiny little thing of ashes that's very clean and very very separate from the living world. And our historical and genealogical memories don't really stretch back that far. Partially in our case, because this is a country of immigrants and nobody has really been here that long aside from the indigenous peoples. So it's very difficult to have a kind of a communal memory that stretches back very far, very far. But that's contingent, right? That's not that's not a universal. That's our particular experience as members of very particular groups who have a very specific history over the past few centuries and maybe a bit longer. Those are not like universals that somehow supersede everybody else's experience of death and understanding of of who their ancestors are and how they relate to them. Yeah, that's really well put. I I agree. And it's all too easy for those of us with this perspective, because it is kind of the majoritarian perspective in the United States, right? And it's very easy for us to assume that that's the norm, right? And everything else is different or exotic or I don't know. But I tried to take myself out of that mindset for this book. I'm not sure that I achieved that completely throughout, but recognizing that there are a multitude of ways of viewing the past relying upon different kinds of evidence and being respectful of that was, was something I tried very hard to do um, in my writing. And while at the same time being clear that this is a book about, you know, a particular way of looking at the past through the lens of archaeology and genetics. So, yeah. So, so just to turn us back to that perspective real fast, uh, one of the things that I really liked about your book was the, the emphasis that you put on Beringia as a key location. So not just a kind of a, a bearing land bridge, not just a real brief stopover, but a place that was actually really central to the story of the, the peoples who would go on to populate the Americas. Um, why is it that Beringia is important to the past of indigenous peoples. What is it that happened there? Yeah, well, and, and that in itself is a bit controversial, right? Um, so I do see Beringia as not just a land bridge that people raced across, right, to get from Asia to North America. But in fact, it was a substantial land connection between about 50,000 and 11,000 years ago, and it extended really far. And so in the models that I favor for the peopling of the Americas, I see it as the homeland for the ancestors of Native Americans, that this was a place where they were sheltering from 
although I, maybe sheltering sounds a little bit too temporary, but they were living there um, during the ice age, during the last glacial maximum in an area that from paleo environmental reconstructions, we think was pretty decent to live in relative to the rest of Siberia and elsewhere in the Americas. And the problem with this perspective is, and I, I admit this freely, is that we don't really have any archaeological evidence for people in the place that I'm thinking of, which is central Beringia along the, what would have been the southern coast of Beringia. We have really good paleoclimactic reconstructions of that area. We have evidence from genomes that people were isolated from all other populations for several thousand years. But we, because this area is under 164 feet of water, we, have, we really don't have archaeological evidence of people there. And so this point is really disputed by archaeologists who say, some archaeologists who say, well, you know, we don't actually have evidence of people there. So let's look at places where we do have evidence. And that would be, you know, southern Siberia, elsewhere in Asia. Maybe that's where this ancestral population was isolated. And other people say maybe they were already in the Americas. Maybe they were already in North America, south of the ice sheets that covered the glacial ice sheets that covered basically all of Canada at the time. And it's a it's an area of contention right now. I would say that I think the majority of, our, of geneticists are in favor of Beringia being the place where people are isolated simply because they were isolated, right? We don't see any evidence of gene flow with other populations. And that doesn't typically happen when you've got, like if this population were in Asia, East Asia, around other populations, it's more likely that you would have seen continued gene flow as a result. So it's, it's speculative in some ways. It's based on paleoenvironmental evidence and, and this evidence, genetic evidence of isolation, but we have a lot of work to do to sort of ground truth it with archeology. span You're at a place you just discovered and being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Oh, okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. It's something that I think can be really hard for outsiders to the field to understand is how thin the archaeological evidence really is throughout much of Alaska in this period and how thin it is in the Americas to the extent that like the reason why I think the biggest reason why the Clovis first theory has hung on as long as it has is because of the sheer difficulty of making solidly attested pre-Clovis sites into any sort of coherent narrative about what people were doing into any sort of technological sequence, into any sort of developmental sequence. It's just really, really difficult to do anything with it. I mean, that's why that perspective seems to have hung along, for, hung around for so long, where like, even if you don't strictly think that the Clovis people were first in the Americas, like 
what was happening before that is really, really hard to suss out, even in a maximalist view of that evidence. Yeah, it is hard um, because you've got all these different sites, these pre-Clovis sites at various places, and they all seem to have, at least from caveat, not an archaeologist, but at least from my perspective, they all seem to have a variety of technologies, right? Mm-hmm. And very little of it is preserved, mostly just stone tools, right? And except at some really remarkable exceptions like Monteverde. So it is difficult to look at it, but I have been encouraged by some archaeologists who tell me, well, look at it this way. Clovis is the aberration, right? So the Clovis techno-complex was this remarkably unified uh, series of sites that had similar um, points made in similar ways. They had other kinds of tools that are made in similar ways. And they're very, very uniform. And they're very, it's very brief, right? It's, it I th- really only lasted for a few hundred years. And then it's gone. And the archaeologists are telling me that's the aberration. It's not that why aren't these pre- Clovis technologies unified? Why don't they look similar to Clovis and that everybody looks the same across the board? But why is Clovis so unified instead? You know, I'm not sure that I can talk intelligently about that, but I've been trying to wrap my brain around other ways of thinking about the archaeological record. And that's kind of the perspective I'm taking right now. Certainly, we see lots and lots of maritime adaptations in some of these really, really early sites. And I think that's probably a really important key to understanding the past is is uh, how well adapted these very first peoples were to the coastal regions. Um, but beyond that, I don't really have good answers. I think we just need to find more sites, which is always true. Yeah. And I mean, and that's, this is the thing is like, I've talked to a lot of uh, archaeologists who work on this period. You you talked to Jesse Halligan and and cite her in your book, uh, Conversations You Had With Her. I had her on to talk about the White Sands footprints um, with Shane Miller and Shane is very much, very much places his emphasis on Clovis. Jesse Halligan obviously has worked on a site that is about the best dated and most strongly attested pre-Clovis site in, in North America. Uh, so these are people who know the evidence really well, and they still strongly disagree about what it means and how to interpret it. And I think that says a lot about kind of the difficulty of working in that period. But yeah, there's as they put it, when I when I was talking to them, they got to go looking for some real old dirt and go looking in the old dirt and see what they can find. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, and I I did a completely unscientific poll for my book where I just like call up archaeology friends and I'm like, okay, which of these pre Clovis sites do you find legitimate and persuasive? And I gotta say, the list I had, I didn't have two archaeologists agreeing on the exact same list. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I can't remember how many I, I I interviewed. I think it was like five or six, and maybe more than that. And yeah, they they didn't have the same list at all. There are some sites though that they you know most of them agreed seemed persuasive, but they're they're a skeptical bunch, and that's okay. That's actually a good thing I think from from a scientific perspective. I am really really intrigued to see how White Sands you know how it all shakes out with White Sands because. That could be a big game changer, I think, if the majority of archaeologists end up finding that persuasive. We have really got to update our models and figure out, okay, how do we account for people here in North America during the LGM? I'm thinking a lot about that, and I have been for for quite a few months now. It's a fascinating 
set of problems. And it seems like at first glance, the site is holding up. The critiques that were published of it, I think were answered really strongly by the authors of the of the initial paper. It seems like it, it has held up in a way that the cave sites in Mexico that were dated to 25 to 30,000 years ago, like the critiques of those sites were really, really forceful, really convincing. And the author's responses were not convincing. Like it seems like those really probably were geofacts and not human-made artifacts that date back so far. Um, but the white's White sand so far, that seems to be that seems to be holding up. I find it very persuasive, but I'm biased because I am currently I'm a co-author with the authors of that paper on a um on something where we're trying to reconcile the genetics and uh archaeological evidence, um, which has not been accepted for publication yet. So I can't really talk about it. But I I do find it persuasive. But then again, I'm not an archaeologist, so that's always my disclaimer. So my my perspective is if this is true, if this is a correct site, you know, what do we do next? How do we understand it in light of the genetics? And I and others have been giving a great deal of thought to that. Um, but I think the difference, the major difference between White Sands and some of these other sites is you cannot argue that humans were not there, right? So yeah, you've got these stone tools and well, they're, they're, they're shaped stones, right? And it's ambiguous. Were they geofacts? Were they artifacts? Do people actually do those? Did people actually make them? At White Sands, there's just no question. Those are footprints. These are human footprints. And, you know, so then the question is dating. And we've got, you know, a lot of perspectives on the dating and the methods used. Um, I'm, I'm really hopeful and excited about the fact that the whole site has not yet been excavated, right? There's still a lot of work to be done there. And so I'm hoping that, you know, we have these testable hypotheses. And I think that archaeologists working there will be able to go out and test them with more data. And so that's very, very exciting. And it makes me happy that my book is coming out now, even though I don't feel like I was able to do justice to White Sands in the short amount of time I had to to write about it. I did get some into it, into the book. So I'm hoping that people will find it useful um, in thinking about it. And then I hope our paper comes out soon. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope so too. I really want to read it. I mean, it's, um, one of the things that uh, it strikes me that geneticists are maybe more comfortable with than archaeologists is the idea of populations that not that, I mean, the, the unkind term is something like a failed migration, but like that there are populations that for a variety of reasons just don't leave descendants that maybe we don't have the exact samples that that show us where their descendants were maybe that maybe something really terrible happened to this group of people at some point and they were unable to they were unable to leave descendants but like human history is full of populations that did not contribute to later populations for a whole array of reasons and that when you when you're coming at it from that perspective and you have that background it's easier to understand a situation in the americas where you have multiple migrations and multiple groups of people who are coming in groups that are thriving for a while and then maybe fall out uh, that that's that's a more natural perspective i think than archaeologists who more who expect i think more continuity um, and more continuous occupation as opposed to discontinuity yeah i i dislike the term failed migration. And I go on a bit of a rant about it in my book. Because, <laughs> well, from my perspective, those people were people and they were living and they were having, they had a home and they were living there and they had families. And, you know, I, so I don't view that as a failure, but the, the question really is, as you say, did they give rise to present day descendants or later descendants who we've been able to detect genetically and archeologically? And I think that one of the reasons geneticists don't really have trouble with that perspective is that we see again and again genomes 
um, from ancient peoples for whom we have no clear contemporary descendants, right? It's, it happens, it's not infrequent in the, in the genetic record. Um, and that's true in the Americas and that's true in Asia and certainly other places around the world that I'm not as familiar with. But I am, but I, I don't have any issue thinking of this in a, trying to think of it in a complicated, a complex way, right? People were moving. It's not like the sort of old view of waves of migration or single migration giving rise to everybody, right? Our models are way too simplistic. They always have been. And I think we've always known that, but I think we forget sometimes that, you know, these arrows on a map are not um, substitutes for the actual complicated lives and decisions that people made in the past. And so I think that it is very possible that we have uh, groups of people who don't have present day genetic descendants. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not there still the ancestors of present day Native Americans, right? For complicated reasons, which I'm not sure I can do justice to in this this uh, this interview, we have a we have an issue where if you go back and you think about your family tree, your genealogical ancestors only a small proportion of them are represented in your genome today, right? And uh, if you want to really drill down and understand this, Graham Coop has done the population genesis. Graham Coop has done an amazing blog series of blog posts that explains this, um, which I could send you a link to if you want. And so, there's a difference between your genetic ancestors, your genealogical ancestors, and then what I would, you know, maybe classify crudely as your cultural ancestors, right? And all of those are legitimate ancestors, right? And so, I can see quite easily the very earliest peoples of the Americas maybe did not have any present day descendants or later descendants uh, genetically, but they are still their ancestors. And, and I don't have any, um, I don't think that that has to be a, a controversial thing, but I'm sure that some people are making it one. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, you mentioned just how common this is. And I mean, even from just the period between say 50,000 BC and 40,000 BC, you have the Ustishim man, um, a femur that was eroding out of a riverbank in Russia. Like that person belonged to a group that left no later descendants. As far as we can tell the guy who had like a Neanderthal great grandparent, um, that was found in the, in this cave in Romania, Peshtera Shuawashe, like that guy belonged to a branch, even leaving aside his Neanderthal descent, which didn't contribute to any later peoples. That person belonged to a, a group of people that left no later descendants. Like this, there appear to be all of these. I mean, like, again, a term like dead end is really unkind, but it, it's like the groups that don't leave a lot of future descendants, or at least descendants that we've found. This is just a constant facet of human population history. And like, if that happens in the Americas too, then that's not surprising. In fact, that is, that should be our baseline expectation. Yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, think about it in terms of your, you know, your own family, right? Sure. We all have aunts and uncles and great aunts and great uncles and so forth who didn't have children. Right. And so, you know, you can, if you extrapolate that onto a larger, broader population scale, there are lineages where it just stops, right? That is totally normal. That does not mean that your aunt and uncle and great aunt and uncle, whatever, are not still relatives of yours and not still, you know, in some sense, ancestors of yours. Right. Um, but it's true. And in the, in the, specifically in the genetic record of the Americas, right now, present day, we have a couple of groups for whom we see this hold true, specifically the, what they call the ancient Beringians or the peoples who lived in Alaska, detected from a couple of genomes, do not seem to have left 
present day descendants. Now, that could be an error of sampling, right? Because we only, like I say, only have a couple of genomes, but they don't seem to be direct uh, genetic ancestors of of contemporary peoples in Alaska or anywhere else in, in the Americas. And that may change when we get more genomes and, and study more genomes, we may find a more complicated history. But for now, that population seems to be, seems to have left no present day descendants. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. There's this group, ancient Beringians, but the ancient Beringians are just one of several groups of people that seem to have come into being um, in relative isolation in Beringia, twenty to thirty thousand years ago, somewhere in that point, is somewhere in that in that realm. Is that right? Yeah, I would say maybe about twenty four to maybe eighteen thousand years ago. You see this splitting off of or this branching of these different groups that we can distinguish genetically. Now, are they, (laughs) this is always the question, right? Are they actually separate groups of people who have separate technologies? Is it just one large population, large, relatively large populations spread out over geographic distance? And you see this kind of population structure emerge genetically, but it's still the same group of people. I mean, we don't know that at all. But yeah, there's at least three that we can distinguish genetically, the ancient Beringians, which I find is a very confusing name and I wish we would change the name. I guess I could have <laughs> changed it in my book. I felt like that'd be a little arrogant, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the geneticist who, who, you know, who identified them. But anyway, the ancient Beringians, who are the peoples who ended up in um, Alaska, but not south of Alaska and seem to have left no present day descendants. And then uh, what they're calling unsampled population A, which is this... Um, sort of cryptic population, I'm using the term population loosely, I'm not sure, you know, we don't really know much about them, but they appear to have left uh, genetic legacies detectable in the genomes of the Miche um, and Mesoamericans, but we've never actually gotten a genome directly from an individual belonging to that genetic population. So, you know, we're still waiting to find out more about them. And then, of course, the ancestors of the present day, first of the first peoples of, of the rest of the Americas. And this the splitting of these groups um, seems to have taken place rapidly during this period of isolation uh, during the height of the LGM. So there, so you can construct a plausible story that more or less matches the paleoclimate data and the genetics, if not the archaeology there, that you can say, okay, we have a group of people moves into 
greater Beringia at some point 24,000-ish years ago. And then for a variety of reasons, this group maybe this group finds that there's nobody else there. It's a it's a pretty welcoming place to live. Uh, these groups grow separated from one another. They go their they go their separate ways. And that's how you end up with population structure in Beringia. That would that would there are different ecotones within within Beringia. It's not a homogenous place. You can have different ways of life and different groups of people that suit themselves to those different, to some people in coastal environments, some people in, uh, in more like a mammoth steppe type environment. You can have different ways of life in this very large landmass that give rise to distinct populations. Is that, is that more or less kind of the, is, is that more or less the plausible story here? Yeah, it's one of some pl- several plausible stories. <laughs> one of them, yeah. It's the one I like, <laughs> for what it's worth. But I mean, again, like very little archaeological evidence to back this up. Yeah, but I'll say this: it's a testable model because <laughs> we have to have our testable models. But you know, it's plausible that some of these people were in North America, right? I mean, mm-hmm. south of the ice sheets at this point, right? Could that explain the White Sands site? Who knows? But for this structure to emerge, in my mind, they have to be isolated from all other populations and they have to at least have some geographic dispersal or isolation from each other, I think. And so that is trying to figure out that story is tricky. Um, and the best we can do is come up with this mo- a couple of testable models and then let's go out and test them with archaeological evidence and more genetic evidence, hopefully. So that kind of brings us full circle. We talked at the very beginning about how fast this is changing, about you know the the possibilities and pitfalls of writing a book at this particular point in time, and you know to the it's unavoidable. Your book is a snapshot of this particular moment in the fields of anthropological genetics and archaeology. As you're looking to the future, you're thinking about testable hypotheses. What are you most excited about? What do you think um, is the kind of new work that's going to come out that might change the story you've laid out here? I'm excited about two things, one in archaeology and one in genetics. And so I'll start with the archaeology. I'm really excited about the archaeologists who are going up to Alaska and Siberia and trying to find LGM period sites. They're really, really smart geoarchaeologists. They know where to look. They're doing some extremely important work. Um, and in the context, and we, I, we probably talked about this last time I was on the podcast, but you know, in the context of Alaska, very little of Alaska has actually been explored archaeologically. And so these archaeologists, I think, have a lot to offer. They're doing the work in a careful way, engaging with communities across Alaska and doing the work with them. And I think that that is uh, an area where I am really excited to see what, what comes out in the next few years. Um, in genetics, what I'm really excited about is the potential for getting more ancient genomes from the what the present day United States, from populations in the present day United States. That has always been a very sensitive and difficult uh, endeavor because, rightly so, a lot of tribes don't want to work with geneticists, don't trust geneticists. Um, they have very good reasons for that, but there are a number of geneticists who are working with tribes on their terms and with, as opposed to, you know, I don't know, against, I don't know. They're working with tribes to, to try to, to, to do ancient DNA work. And that is ongoing. And by its very nature, it's slow because it takes a long time to develop these relationships and to do the work in a good way. We can't, I, I guess I'll, I'll out myself as being somebody who is working in this area. <laughs> We can't just turn these these uh, genomes out um, as fast as some of the other big labs are doing. 
And so it's going to be a while before our results are available, but I am extremely excited about the work that my lab is doing, that my colleagues are doing. I think that it's going to help us understand these events in a new way. And um, so, you know, just to be a little self-focused, I, I am, I'm really excited about that. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's, it's something that I think can be really hard for outside observers to understand, even people who have kind of a casual interest in ancient DNA, the way that the biggest labs in this field work, where they absolutely churn through samples and put all of this data out there, that like that is an approach that has benefits and drawbacks. There are benefits to doing that in that, you know, you're generating a huge amount of data and you're generating a huge amount of heat and you get a lot and you get a lot of coverage of those kinds of findings, but you're also destroying a ton of samples. Every sample that you that you use for something like that, once it's gone, it's gone. You can't use it for anything else. So there's that. There are also the potential ethical pitfalls involved in churning through huge numbers of samples that Frankly, that's not a one-size-fits-all approach. It works really well for those labs because of the way that they work, but that can't be your approach to every single area of the human past. Right. And for small to medium-sized lab groups like mine, or I should say ours because mine is a joint lab group with multiple PIs, we can't we can't work at the same pace. We don't have the same resources. Um, you know, we don't have millions of dollars to have our own sequencing centers or anything like that. We have to work more slowly. But I think that that slower approach is better for us because it lets us do this work with communities and engage long-term and to build, build relationships that persist. I mean, I, you know, one of my projects that I, I am heading up, I stepped into a relationship as sort of the heir of a, uh, a relationship that has been going on between researchers at my university and a particular community for decades and, you know, the, the professor, my predecessor retired and um, I stepped into that role and, and, and hopefully will be able to build upon the great work that he's done. But it's, you know, it's very, very slow, but I think it's a better way to work from my perspective and for the things I want to do. This is uh, the right approach, even if it means, you know, I'm not churning out papers every year. I feel good about the work that I'm doing and I hope to be able to continue to do it in the future. So. Cool. And and again, this brings us kind of full circle back to why you wrote the book. If you're working on the genetics of Neolithic farmers in Iran who lived 10,000 years ago, there aren't people who are claiming them as ancestors. If you're working outside of a very few strange corners of the internet, if you're working on Proto-Indo-Europeans and DNA, there are not a lot of people who are directly claiming them as ancestors. But when you're working with the kind of material that you're working with, and you have people who do feel a direct relationship with the human remains that you've got and with that genetic ancestry, that's a much different kind of proposition and it's a much different kind of relationship and it means different things to different people. And like, it's cool to have a different approach to that. Yeah. It, I, and it's crucial to have a different approach to that, I would say, right? You know, I one has to work within the... Um, constraints of tribal sovereignty and respect that. So the tribes that I work with, they're in charge. These are their ancestors. As far as I'm concerned, the work that we do is done on their terms. They say yes or no. Sometimes they say no. And I respect that. And they say what can be done, right? And I don't publish until I have shown them the results and we've talked about them and hopefully uh, incorporated their perspectives into the final research products. And this is a, this is a, 
process that takes a really long time. I mean, readers will notice, I think, that very little of my own work is in this book. And um, that's because it hasn't been brought to completion yet. Um, we are still we are still going through this um, this long process. And I don't want to rush it. I want to do the right, I want to do it right. And I think it'll be really meaningful, even if it's a smaller scale study or um, maybe doesn't have the same impact that some of these larger papers do. Uh, I still feel better about doing my work this way. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's an admirable thing. Origin is a wonderful book for anybody who has any interest in these topics, which I, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably do. Check out Origin. I highly recommend it. Dr. Rath, thank you so much for joining me again for the third time, and I can't wait to have you on again. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Tides of History ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Thanks so much for joining me today. Be sure and hit me up if you'd like to chat about anything we've talked about on Tides or something you'd like to see. You can find me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman or on Facebook at Patrick Wyman MMA or on Instagram at Wyman underscore Patrick. I write on other topics at patrickwyman.substack.com. Tides of History is written and narrated by me, Patrick Wyman. The sound engineer is Sergio Enriquez. Tides of History is produced by Morgan Jaffe. From Wondery, the executive producers are Jenny Lower Beckman and Marshall Louie. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, from Wondery, this has been Tides of History. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.